I'm Andrew Faust, your host with Permaculture Perspectives. Today, this is part of our Permaculture Living Lands Trust listening series. This is number three with Jared Woodcock. Jared, I had heard through the grapevine about, because of the extensive and impressive work that he's doing, planting out large projects of, uh, you know, upwards of 6,000 trees or more we're talking about of plantings of hazelnuts and chestnuts. He's worked in many projects with Mark Shepard, who wrote Restoration Agriculture. He's been the key boots-on-the-ground person, making a number of quite interesting and large-scale agroforestry tree plantings happen in the Hudson Valley. And here you'll hear us talking, and we get into a nice range of topics. Jared's a fascinating figure, doing really important work with tree crops, and uh, I really liked discussing with him his work in uh, logging with horses, and so enjoy. I'm sure you will. Fascinating conversation here. So folks, I'm excited to have Jared Woodcock here on Permaculture Perspectives. Jared's got a wealth of experience in the application of agroforestry. Uh, He's created what I'm excited to hear more about, some really unique agricultural education programming at SUNY Adirondack, and has a real unique diversity of skill sets with his horse logging operation and woodlot management, as well as creating educational programming and homesteading experience. And so a lot to share with our audience for those interested in permaculture who have the idea about scaling it up, agroforestry, carbon sequestration, education. So excited to discuss with you, Jared, the different areas that you've been developing experience in, that you have a a repertoire and background in. Really excited to hear about different projects that you've been working on over the years. Um, Yeah, thanks thanks for joining me on this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a pretty chatty guy, so I'm always happy to talk about stuff I like. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> great. Yeah. And it, this is part of a part of a, what we're calling a Permaculture Living Lands Trust listening series, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but mainly my colleague and I, David Harper, and our, our third element of change is Lisa DePiano, who teaches at University of Massachusetts. You might be familiar with Lisa. Um, We've created this land trust really with the purpose of thinking about how to protect and preserve, first of all, in classic land trust language, some of the existing um, vestigial genetic repositories of uh, valuable tree crop, say, you know, nurseries that some of you probably are familiar with are Parker Coble's plantings. The, the iconic one for us that really kind of precipitated the creation of the land trust was the Hershey trees in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, because that happens to be where I grew up. And interestingly, the actual meeting house that those trees are planted around, I was a kid attending Quaker meeting there for most of my uh, teen years. And at that time, knew nothing about permaculture or tree crops or John Hershey or any of those things. And then really kind of uncanny to hear years later from Dale Hendricks and Buzz and Zach and those people who've been discovering those trees that, you know, they were right all around where I had been attending meeting were these vestigial plantings that 
still today, sadly, except for the ones on the meeting house grounds, are at risk, right? Of We've seen 70-year-old pecan trees get bulldozed to expand a parking area for development down there. So that's like a, a quick snapshot for you, intro on uh, sort of the vision mission behind the 501c3 that we're, that's nascent, that we're just creating, and, and part of what I wanted to, to share with you today and to meet and talk with you is because of this bringing about of uh, permaculture land trust and kind of finally having the keys to the vehicle of it being a fully IRS endorsed nationally recognized 501. Um, But we're just, you know, we were mainly six months into it. So reaching out to folks like yourself who we've heard really good things about and just wanted to, to build a, build a bit of a rapport, have some discussions and yeah, looking forward to hearing about your work. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've, um, I've worked with a agricultural land trust in my area on various capacities for a while, um, including we founded a community forest in our town and it was one of their, they're an agricultural land trust, but I, you know, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. including the staff members were really interested in forestry because our agriculture in our area is mixed forestry and dairy mostly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, yeah, we founded this small community forest in our town and that was one of their first land acquisition projects. Um, so I'm pretty, I've been, I've been in the thick of that for a while. So it's pretty, it's a tough world, but it's ama- It's a really amazing world. There's a lot of super cool people working in the land trust. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. And our, our feeling was that we wanted to build on the strengths and successes of what the land trust and conservation community has accomplished and take it to another level as far as having it be something that ties a little more into local sustainability, sustainable harvests, you know, getting a yield that is long-term and starting to have land trusts play a role in helping to facilitate that more. Like they've done a lot to protect iconic natural places. They've done a lot to show the ability to protect and preserve intact, healthy ecosystems, but they haven't so far done as much as they could to say be relevant to the local food movement or to local autonomy and, you know, sustainable forestry. These are things that, you know, like I, I know the guys, um, Ryan at Catskill, uh, they, I forget the name of their company. They do a, a nice job down here with um, sustainable forestry work. Yeah. Yeah, I met him. I met met a few of those folks many, many years ago. Yeah, uh, we were talking about some of the habitat work they were doing. It's really cool. So you're up in which part of New York I'm State? In, or- in Washington County. Washington County. Uh-huh. Yep. So I'm in the town of Cambridge. The closest big town is Bennington, Vermont. Mm-hmm. What we call a big town. <laughs> yeah. Right. We're, yeah, we're run, one red light, more than one horse town. Um, mm-hmm. Saratoga Springs is pretty close by too. Oh, nice. Yep. So, and um, what brought you there? Did you grow up there? Is that, yeah, place? yeah, yeah I'm, I'm like uh, five or so generations probably in the area, mm-hmm. depending on whose history was written. Uh huh. <laughs> All right. I'm sure there's right. plenty of hanky panky going on. Right. I was raised. To, I was raised. I was told I was mostly German and Irish, and then I used to take these um, 
Japanese exchange students on an agricultural tour, like a two-day tour in our area. Mm -hmm. And um, it was uh, mostly young college-aged girls and they were, you know, pretty quiet and pretty polite. And, you know, I'm like kind of a talkative hillbilly and never really got them to engage very easy. And then one day we were at um, a slate museum or slate Valley museum that tells all about the slate mining history, quarrying history. Mm -hmm. And six girls come running around the corner with their phones and they like yelling at me like, "Ah!" I'm like, what, what? I'm like, come here, come here, come here, come here. And they show me this wall. It's like this massive wall. And it's like each room has like a wall of different types of immigrants all standing there, like, you know, 50 to hundred people just standing there in the stone quarry in a photo and this wall was literally like 50 of me, like 50 long sinewy uh, guys with bushy mustaches. And it was, like, <laughs> it was like, this is the Welsh quarry team. And they're all like taking selfies with me. I'm like, well, apparently someone in my family was in my bloodlines was Welsh. Cause yeah, right. it was pretty obvious that this is the wall I've been on. Yeah. So who knows how long my family's been here. <clears throat> yeah. That's part of my my heritage too is Welsh. Growing my my mom's side comes from the Poconos area as Welsh miners. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I grew up on a dead end road that was named after my dad's side of the family. So we've been here for a while. Which and I, I I have to say I love your your name. I mean Woodcock. That is one of our favorite woodland species that we have here. Sort of meadow sort of woodland meadow mosaic ecology that they seem to particularly love, which we, uh, our property is 14 acres. We have a 10 acre, what has been abandoned hay meadow for probably not hay for going on five decades. And we, when we first bought this property, my wife and I would go out there and sit and we'd hear that bird. And it was very iconic for us as an experience here because I'd never had familiarity with the woodcock and it has such an awesome call and the whole process by which they do their mating dances and calls with each other and make that wild sound when they land just such really an incredible bird species to have, uh, to have yeah. as your namesake. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was, it, you know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't like love it, of course, but. <laughs> right. Of course. Kids are brutal. <laughs> one, of my, one of my best friends calls me plastic pecker. So uh, <laughs> that's a funny play on birds. <laughs> but no no and in college one of my other friends the reason i call my horse logging and my forest management timber doodles because timber that's doodle. like the, the nickname for the woodcock oh i did not know that. yeah the timber, timber doodle because of that you know they're flying out of the timber doing their little doodling um, right yeah their call is so just kind of it's it's like uh electronic music or something the sound they make when they're landing it's like you can't imagine that that's coming from a bird like what yeah. is that and the stuff they do with their wings is pretty amazing too. Their feathers, yeah. they, they really make a pretty sweet, a lot of the whistle actually comes from the feathers. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. And cool. you did, you did work as a field biologist with Smithsonian. Is that right? Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I was, I was nicknamed bird boy at like age four. Cause I had hawks and pigeons and everything I could catch. I had, I was obsessed with birds. So, you know, going back to the woodcock name thing, I, um, I basically thought I would never go to college and I just kind of was like, I'm just going to travel and do my thing. And then through a series of events, I ended up at college and my first 
my very first day at school, my sister had gotten married the day before. So I was like super tired. I roll in, I go to my very first advisor meeting. He was an ornithologist and he's like still one of my best friends to this day. But I walk in and this professor guy bright and early in the morning just starts laughing at me like this eccentric laugh. And I'm like, what is going on? And he's like, I love those birds. I just love those birds. I'm like, what is he talking about? And we're trying to figure it out. I'm like, oh, Woodcock. Yes, yes. Woodcock, right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I end up working with him and coming back to grad school with him too. And yeah, I studied birds all over the place. I've, I've uh, really loved field biology. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has some parallels in permaculture where we sort of take advantage of youth and use a lot of free labor. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and you're outside in the elements. So um, right. part of that I really liked. Um, yeah, one of my first jobs I got uh, as a, I got it as a freshman, actually. I went down for a visit to Puerto Rico to study, visit a study that was doing northern water thrush work in the overwintering grounds mm-hmm. on the mangroves there because they were closing Roosevelt Road's um, uh, naval base. Yeah, naval base. Um and we we're afraid, or a lot of people were afraid the mangroves are going to just get developed. Um, so we were doing as much work as we could. But I went down there and I learned really quickly that the reason they asked me to go down was because um, they had an old Volkswagen that they couldn't get going. And I was a mechanic. <laughs> so I like did field work for three days. This was my spring break. I did field work for three days and I, I fixed the Volkswagen for a couple of days and I surfed for a couple of days. And at the end of the week, the biologist asked, offered me a job for the next year. And like, from that point on, I was like, okay, I could definitely live this lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Kids, kids slowed it down a little bit. Yeah. So you're raising a family where you are? Yeah. Yeah. My, we were actually, my wife got pregnant. We were, we were living in a, a teepee on the edge of the forest service in New Hampshire. And, and my wife got pregnant. We started our family and she's from Omaha, Nebraska. And, um, so we kind of were like, I was like, it's up to you, honey, we can go with my family or go to your family. And mm-hmm. we, both agreed. we really liked it here. So we came back to my family and then we moved her mom in with us so that we didn't have to split them up. <laughs> oh, nice. That's yeah. great to be able to do that. Yeah. She lives in a beautiful little cabin in our garden. And so we have, it's great. We have many hands in the garden at our house. Really oh, nice. that's yeah. And that kind of intergenerational experience is really excellent for your children yeah yeah i think it's priceless yeah um the man that i learned you know what we now call permaculture from back then he just called gardening but he Mm -hmm. was he's even though the land that we lived on growing up was my family's they had sold it out um and my father became friends with this old man that owned a lot of it and he sold it back to my father for a handshake and he kept a parcel at the bottom and he had all sorts of health problems because he was an old school, like war veteran trucker and he had like emphysema and all these things. So yeah. Starting at like, age five, I worked in his garden for him mm-hmm. uh, doing pretty much everything. And he paid me really well. Like I wish I could make that much money nowadays doing that kind of work, garden work, but he, uh, <laughs> I learned a ton from him. Um, like, you know, he kind of started that whole ball rolling and what I, what I now call permaculture. I didn't realize permaculture was a thing until I went to school in New Hampshire and I became friends with Josh at D acres. Oh yeah, sure. And, um, yeah. and we did a few things together and I was like, wait, what's permaculture? What is this stuff? You know, like I mm-hmm. thought this is just what everybody did when they were kids. <clears throat> right. Yeah. 
I had one of the examples is I tell people is we had like a, a two hole outhouse. And this was, we had sort of inherited this property from the, the man who we took care of and, you know, going back to like our intergenerational stuff, you know, he was like my grandfather, even though he wasn't, but in our outhouse, like eventually my mom, you know, as I got older, my mom like updated the house and modernized and everything. And one day she was like, we got to take the outhouse down. It's in rough shape. You know, it's like been standing there for 30 years. So I go in and I didn't realize the library I had read on the outhouse when I was a kid it was like there was the original, um, what's it called? Like New World Catalog or what is that? Oh, yeah. Whole Earth Catalog. Yeah, Whole Earth Catalog. The original was there. There was yeah. organic gardening from like volume one through the 80s. There mm-hmm. was Mother Earth News from volume one through the 80s, in late 80s. I was like, man, I guess sitting in the outhouse, I learned a lot not knowing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. As an adult, yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's like a gold mine. These are all like falling apart and rotten and whatever. But <clears throat> right. But the knowledge it was imparted, so that was, <laughs> that's where it's still alive and well. Yeah, potentially, it, like just absorbed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what that? So that's kind of your organic evolution of permaculture. Is there any more kind of formal exploration, or how would you say it's informed any of your? Um, was it some you came across in academics as you? developed agroforestry programs or some of that work no not really i mean no. i mean permaculture like i said like i i was kind of doing i don't know just gen i would just kind of call it homesteading i grew up around dairy like dairy farming is the primary driver here my neighbors were dairy farmers so that was the yeah. sort of formal farming that i knew my family yeah. didn't, didn't do dairy but i worked on farms and friends and it was like it's our culture here mm-hmm. we had cows but we weren't commercially farming dairy um but the, uh, yeah, I guess Josh, probably Josh was the first person who introduced me to the yeah. word permaculture, uh, Josh at D acres. So then yeah. a, a friend of mine who was living there, Morgan, or, um, I just go hang out with those guys and, you know, we became buddies. I did some workshops for them, like converting cars to run on vegetable oil. And oh yeah. Josh yeah. is into the biodiesel thing, right? Or no, yeah. straight vegetable oil. Is it SVO? SBO mostly. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, okay. I, yeah. I hosted the first workshop for him. We met at like an Earth Day thing. I had um, my professor that I was talking about earlier. He, he, uh, you know, he was kind of my like environmentalist sort of mentor. I mean, mm-hmm. I had like growing up, I had like more applied biology mentors, like real mountain people. I'd consider like, I learned the like the hard stuff that way, but he was more like the social and political side mentor. And mm-hmm. I had a little Volkswagen rabbit pickup truck and he really wanted me to show people how to do veggie oil. So I like pieced together the cheapest kit I could with just random parts so people could see mm-hmm. and then brought it to an earth day fair and just like smoked everybody out with costumes. <laughs> but Josh had set up next to me and was trying to get interns. So we became friends and then we did some workshops and converted his trucks and, you know yeah one of one of his one of his interns is a good friend of mine i converted his car and we both moved to colorado together <laughs> like yeah venue mm-hmm. opened some funny doors for me at, at, uh, in college it was fun <clears throat> right yeah yeah it seems like i think because a lot of the waste vegetable oil started to get s- just snatched up by bigger operations it seems like the homespun pursuits around that have sort of fizzled out to some extent, right? It didn't, 
I at least don't come across many people exploring it these days. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about that because I got a new, well, new to me, I have a diesel truck and my neighbor has the same engine now. And we were like, we should probably, he has a biodiesel processor, but it, I don't know, for me, it's kind of a pain. It is the whole tetrification um, or whatever it's called. Yeah. Like, it's not hard, but it's just like one more thing to do in the day, especially when you it have kids. But eventually yeah. I felt like it wasn't that much work. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I was wondering that the other day. Is it just because I'm not in that bubble anymore? Or because I feel like I used to see bumper stickers everywhere and people cruising, yeah. like the whole Vegual high five thing. <clears throat> well, I know part of it down here is that actually companies started offering services to pick it up and then making it on a more industrial scale. And so I think it basically, the market for it, disappeared for homespun operations because people were actually paying money for it who ran like there's a company down here called tri-state biodiesel and they've got full-on tanker trucks and they're using all the waste vegetable oil from like all the restaurants yeah so now now it's actually hard to find Hmm. yeah we sort of did that a little bit in new hampshire the the one of josh's friends uh owned a shop called ktm auto and it was kind of like, it was not a regular auto repair shop, but he also was a real hot rodder guy. So him and I would like um, mess around with all sorts of like vegetal hot rodding. And one day he's like, yeah, check this out. And he went and bought a uh, septic tank sucking truck, like a big, huge, like negative pressure truck. And right. we started going around like collecting all the veggie oil and like, you know, had a little pump and that was, yeah, was, yeah we were right. those point it was pretty fun what i I noticed though was like even when i did it like in the midwest there were a bunch of companies already doing that and when i drove cross country i usually would just like knock on the door and most people were like yeah sure like we don't care what our contract says go ahead and take some (laughs) yeah i think reliable supply might be different right because you were just sort of skimming off the top for them probably yeah but So what, what brought you to the horse logging? Was that something that you had experience working with teams of horses doing farm draft animal work earlier yeah. in life? Or was that, yeah. A little bit. My, I have always had horses. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of me as like a four month old on a horse. My, my father was into horses he, more like he was more of a cowboy. Like he did when he was a kid, he did barrel racing and Western stuff. And then when I, when, you know, by the time I was old enough to, play with him he wasn't really into anymore but he still had friends in the rodeo world Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I uh he had this one old timer guy that was a buddy of his who was a draft horse guy and um if you don't know draft horse people like he's like you're you're at least from that generation your stereotypical draft horse guy had like a greasy feed hat like kind of like mine and they just like smoking cigarettes quiet calm stand lean against any happy to talk to anybody anytime they always had nice calm big huge horses and um and i just really gravitated towards that guy and i uh worked like i said a garden for the neighbor i mowed random lawns i would go collect beer cans along the dirt roads for money and i worked and i saved like 350 bucks i think and i was convinced it was time for me to get my own horse i didn't want to share a horse with my dad and my sisters and everything so we called, we called, uh, we, the old horse trader guy, he got wind of that and he used to go to Pennsylvania every couple of weeks and get equipment and whatever and mm-hmm. sell stuff. Um, with the Amish. but he got wind of that and then he knew about this pony 
I was in pretty rough shape. It was like tied up to one of those dog loo dog houses. And the man who owned it was just this like massive fat guy who wasn't obviously going to do anything of his pony. And it was just like, it was in pretty rough shape. So he convinced, well, he told my dad the story. I didn't know what I was getting into. So I got my hard earned money and we took my dad's truck to go look at this pony. And he convinced my dad that like, we should probably get this pony. Like it needs a new home. And I, we roll on the driveway and I'm like, I really wanted a paint horse and I want something big. You know, I had this vision as this little, like whatever I was, eight year old kid. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it was this tiny little sorrel pony with one white spot on it. And that's what it qualified as a paint to him. Uh-huh. My dad looked around, saw the dog tied to the doghouse or the horse tied to the doghouse and was like, Yep, this is the horse for you, Jared. And I'm like, no, no, I'm this. And he's like, it's going home with us, buddy. <laughs> so yeah. we had a little Toyota pickup truck. He went to the hardware store, screwed some plywood onto his ladder rack, and then threw the pony in the back of the truck and tied it on. And as we were driving home, his head was like over the cab of the Toyota. And you could see cars <laughs> driving, like staring at us. Like, what is that? And he was just so happy to be not tied to that doghouse. Oh, gosh. Yeah. But I brought him home and I hopped on him. I rode him up and down around the neighborhood. And he's just like a typical pony, like, you know, just bouncing right. around. So right. I complained, like, you know, like an ungracious kid, I complained that I spent 350 bucks on this pony and he doesn't really ride very well. And the old, <laughs> the old horse trader guy goes, Oh, that's because he's a trotting horse. That's like a trot horse, like from the racing tracks, you know, like you need a cart for him. It'll be a lot smoother, which is total BS, but that's just, it was a style and he felt guilty. So one day I come home from school and we live pretty high up on a mountain, like middle of nowhere. Um, you know, usually people would think they weren't, gonna ever make it there before till they got to our house but i come home from school one day walk the mile up from the bus and sitting on my porch is this little sulky cart with a harness laid over it uh-huh like huh so he had gone to pennsylvania and bought me some gear because he felt guilty so i go out i get the pony i didn't know what i was doing i just like threw it on the way i thought it might work and slid the shafts in and you know took off and i never turned back i i have barely ridden since um, so I've been driving since then. I just, I never did any real work. <laughs> I just screwed around a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I always had a vision that like, maybe someday I would do real work. <laughs> uh, that's what what's your, what's your team like now that you, that you're working with? I've got right now, I've got a, um, I got a paint pony finally. <laughs> uh-huh. It's for my kids. My wife's like, this is your dream horse. You have a kid, but no, I've got a, I've got Suffolk punch. They're sort uh-huh. of a rare draft horse breed. There's like a chestnut colored horse. Um, they, I've had Pertron. I really like Pertron, honestly. I've had Pertron uh-huh. and other slightly more common breeds, but the Suffolk's are one of the few breeds that are still like low and thick and are bred for work. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> taglines are bred for the furrow. Um, they're basically born to work. While a lot of the draft horses come from the, history of war horse and just at post crusades what are we going to do with these big horses and in america we've a lot of our draft horses have gone the way of like the budweiser clydesdales where they're kind of narrow and big, big flashy feet and you know they they step really high they're kind of inefficient but like cool looking right. um, which is not really very good for work i mean i've worked those types of horses and they're great and you can do a lot with them but they're just their bodies aren't built to to last and built to do hard work all day. Mm-hmm. So the Suffolk is one of the few breeds that really truly is still 
Um, there's a bit of a, a little resurgence of the uh, Belgian Brabant horse in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. My friends are using those, and they're similar. Like they're also very work typey, real thick and low. Right. Somewhere around sixteen hundred pounds and sixteen hands tall. So I've got a few of those. I got a mare, 10, 10 year old mare, I believe she is. I've got her two year old son, and then I've got a four year old half sibling, plus the forty eight inch paint pony of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with the horse logging work, you were. I I was just looking at some of your write up on LinkedIn. It was saying that you were. Um, doing consulting and working in that sector is is that something that you're finding there's a good bit of demand for those services that you offer it's ridiculous the amount of demand yeah okay it's on it's unbelievable so i have friends in the logging world conventional logging world similar to like my permaculture stuff a lot of my friends i grew up with are dairy farmers conventional dairy farmers and and i see I'm not the type of person that sees anything wrong. I just have a different style. So yeah. they're always like, ah, you're crazy. You know, cool idea with them hazelnuts, but what are you thinking? You know, kind of just like pick, picking on each other. And I get the same thing in the logging world. My op, the mechanical operator friends and more conventional foresters will pick on me for being a horse logger. Yeah. Um, there just isn't a better tool for the job. Right. Than a horse. They just fit perfectly. Yeah. Very efficient. They have their own brain. Like it's, it's just not a better tool for the job. And yeah. the thing that I always say is like here in New York, we we're trying to. It's funny. We're we're letting conventional timber industry help dictate some of the tax things and the rules and regulations and best management practices, which yeah. sort of makes sense. Like the industry needs to be involved in those conversations. But like ninety eight percent of our landowners are small fragmented parcels that don't support extractive like timber. Like right. the, most people yeah. you do a survey. Like I was at a meeting with in, at the DEC office in Albany with a pile of foresters and loggers. And I was like, I know I'm the odd one out here, but I am like barely scratching an itch. That's huge. And you know, you, I get the like, yeah, yeah, you'll never get anything done. And like, yeah, maybe, but the majority of people who own forests in New York won't do anything. Like if we want them to manage their forests, yeah, we give them options. And man, it's I, it's crazy. I, I could if I wanted to, <laughs> I could stay just crazy busy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's been my my uh, analysis as well. Is that you know from what I've heard the. Uh, the majority of forest land throughout the eastern United States is privately owned and smaller parcels, like you're saying, you know, in contrast to the West Coast, where you've got national forests that are owned by the feds, we don't have, you know, that's just not part of the pattern of landscape in the eastern United States. Yeah. Yeah. And we have we have, you know, coastal liberal people owning this land, too, like people who don't really want like, like you said, extractive things, you know, like, yeah. And so part of it, I think part of why people call me is because of like just my style of forestry, which I could do with machines too. It's right. just easier to do with live power and I enjoy it better. Yeah. Uh, and there's just not that many small machine operators out there anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, 
small skaters or, or forestry tractors or anything. There just aren't, they don't, you know, it's economy of scale. It's really hard to make it doing that. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, but even like in the Adirondacks, that's public land and I get hired to go do horse work up there. So mm-hmm. there's a demand. I, there's contracts that I might be bidding on out West that are great. And there's just no, no one who wants to do them <laughs> or can like, you know, you kind of have to have like 20 or 30 years under your belt to really, <laughs> really do it safely alone, you know? Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense in your, uh, and so how, how does that inform the agroforestry work that you're doing? What would you, is there like a, yeah. a safe way for like how those things started to emerge? Yeah. Yeah. I would say um, the small farming world, like my wife and I had small pastured livestock operation and actually, you know, it really, it kind of goes back a ways when we went right after grad school, um, we moved back to the area and we went up for a hike to the Merck forest and farmland center, which is near here over mm-hmm. in Rupert, Vermont. And they're a not-for-profit forest and farmland place, mostly forest. And while we were there, I was talking with the director and she was like, wow, we really need a farm manager and we're struggling. You know, do you think you'd be interested? And we had just moved back there. I said, sure. So I took on the farm manager, farm director job. And I just kept my, I just, we had a forester too. And I just kept uh, catching myself being like doing forestry work. Mm-hmm. That's where my heart is. Like the wild forest is where I might, where I'm most comfortable, where I grew up. And one day I was talking at a staff meeting, a board meeting. I'm like, I'm just going to plant a bunch of trees on this farm. Like <laughs> there's no reason we should be farming on this top of this hill and struggling to keep these fields open. We should be planting a bunch of trees up here. And, uh, and it was sort of a joke, but at the same time, I'm like, I got to figure something out to put trees back on the landscape to what I call now, like reforest the food system. Yeah. Because I just, where we live, if you let fields go, trees grow. Yeah. Um, so instead of fighting succession, it makes sense to figure out how we can have like a participated succession. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. though I wouldn't mind seeing it just going to popples and, going crazy and full of woodcocks and grouse for the next 50 years either. That doesn't, I don't, I don't like a lot of people. They don't like seeing farmland go fallow. It doesn't bother me a bit, but we right. also need to eat. <laughs> right. we got a lot of people that aren't going to go pick their own food and hunt for their own food. So. Right. Yeah. Supporting that reality is, is, you know, kind of, I kind of feel like agroforestry for me is almost like, it's something I keep getting sucked into and I do believe in it, but it's also, I think where I stand out in the agroforestry world where I differ, I should not stand out, but where I differ, mm-hmm. is, I think it's just a little, it's a pretty weak little bandaid. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I know you have a little bit of a, a little bit of the um, Mad Max in you from what I've heard of you, your writings and stuff like you, you're not scared a, li- a little bit of a, more chaotic future is that right <laughs> uh well i think it's all a psychological experiment mm-hmm. you know, in attitude at this point we don't yeah. really know how we're going to react to it but it's true i like to strike a posture of saying who knows what it's going to bring and it may not be as bad as we think it's going to be but that's that's more hypothetical right yeah yeah so, yeah. so for agroforestry like <clears throat> 
the way I, pre- I the way I presented this before is like I want it. I we should do it. Like I'm doing it. Like I believe in it. Yeah, um, I really like the nut crops too. I just like eating them. Um, yeah. I like I like the jobs it creates. I like the nurseries. I like the people I meet. It's just like it's just a great world to be in. Right. Right. It's very scalable. You know, scalable maybe replicable is probably a better mm-hmm. term. For it. But the um, the way I framed it at one talk, though, was I showed this picture. I'll describe it to you. I, there was a picture of this handsome young man pushing a wheelbarrow through this closed canopy sort of orchard, but it was pretty wild, like a lot of like really diverse plants on the um, understory, but obviously rows of trees, some vines and some like, you know, kind of wild animals. It was just like a really beautiful scene of this like really handsome guy, like pushing a wheelbarrow. And everyone was like, wow, that's great. Like that's agroforestry. It's like the integration of, you know, cattle and trees and whatever. I'm like, yeah, that's great. And then I zoomed out because I, whatever I planned, I zoomed out and it was a palm oil plantation. And we can all agree that those fucking suck. (laughs) I think we can all agree that. But when you zoom in on it, it's like this beautiful agroforestry system. But when you put it in the context of like, it's it's horrible. So we're in the opposite. Like my great grandpa, those Welsh folks I was talking about that aren't even on my paperwork. (laughs) Like we deforested in this place. The land I grew up in was all sheep pasture when my, my grandmother was a kid. Yeah. And it's coming back and this will, I'll lead, this will lead into your tree land trust stuff. Cause I really am interested in that, but. Um, so we're kind of in the opposite of the palm oil plantations in Brazil where like they have intact forests that they need to like learn how to, how to participate in again and be human, like more human and less yeah. extracted, less whatever. I'm not going to get into it. We all know, you know, the elitists, you know, first world folks, I guess we'll all say palm oil is pretty bad. But if, if it's like literally the poster child of agroforestry, then what are we doing wrong? But we're kind of in the opposite here. We already screwed everything up. We've already deforested our the gene bank that's available in our natural forests is so depleted, at least where I live. It's just like so depleted um, that we we gotta be the beavers and the squirrels. We gotta get in there and participate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, the best of the best bottomland ag land can stay in some sort of regenerative style of annual agriculture. But a lot of these hill pastures that we have that really shouldn't have been plowed in the first place and are mostly going into hay fields and fallow now, let's yeah. stack, let's stack some functions on them. Let's get get some shade for the livestock, get some get some yield, and yeah, create some local jobs and maybe sequester a little carbon and invite some birds into the field while we're at it. Yeah. Well, I like that picture you're painting because I very much resonate with that same pattern. I've been thinking similarly that it's about having, you know, the the prime ag soils that are in the floodplain in more beyond organic regenerative methods of annual production with still expanded riparian buffers, not farming right up to the edge of the waterways like we see today in most of these prime ag soils. So, you know, some edge inclusion of tree crops and forest crops, but more the steep slopes and the, uh, like you're saying, the less than prime soils, the old dairy country kind of geology is perfect for integrating these multifunctional tree crop plantings into, right? 
rather than it concerns me when I see operations who start filling up prime agricultural soils in a floodplain with tree crops, which I've encountered projects that do that, where they're like, oh, we could, we could plant out your whole old, you know, prime ag soil and chestnuts. And I'm like, well, isn't there a lot of land that actually that would be better suited to? You know, yeah. we might like we might want to keep prime agricultural soils for things like potatoes that just don't like rocky uh, hay field type of geology, but do like Unadilla silt loam or some other like deep soil that naturally occurred there that's got geologic potential for long term annual production. It's it's important, I think, to recognize that you can come into a landscape with ideas about what should go where that need to modulate and adapt to what, what is that landscape telling us? Right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I really like what you're saying about where the placement of these tree crops makes sense, where to bring these multifunctional plantings in is something to have an idea about what, what's that pattern look like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think there are, well, for one, Chestnuts just don't do good in that. So like they need a, they need a <laughs> acidic well-drained soil and they need some air drainage where we are. Like, you know, we're pushing the limits for these mostly Chinese chestnuts, our production. Yeah. We're pushing yeah. the limits up here a little bit. Um, so we gotta, you know, you gotta cite them right. But, you know, this goes sort of into the genetics and, and uh, the, some of the work you're doing, um, like Zach and my buddy, Joe Pizzo, we've done a few th- little few projects together and, something that we both as a whole really dear to our heart is, is hickories and mm-hmm. aglands for walnuts and hickories are pretty sweet. So maybe yeah. it's like, uh, the yeah. other thing that you brought up, I really love is the productive riparian buffers. Exactly. So yeah. Having a nice productive riparian buffer, yeah. a place that's in some sort of grass uh, rotation, grass annual rotation. Yeah. And then, you know, toe slope work and then up on those better air drainage, we can, we can produce a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I would love the whole entire Hudson watershed to be a productive riparian buffer that just like pumping food onto boats to the city. Right. Exactly. It would be great. And I can't wait to see it. (laughs) We're we're in the, uh, we're in the Rondout watershed, a sub watershed of the Hudson here. And that's something that I've been doing just kind of general concept, what I call a case study analysis of like using the watershed as an example to say, what does it look like to design our whole watershed to be more food independent? And how do we start with places like multifunctional or productive buffers? And I think the productive buffers thing, we can get a lot of traction with as, as tree advocates, as people who want to see more perennial foods get sewn into the landscape. Um, because there's already a lot of focus on it policy-wise, you know, in this, in New York state, we've got the DEP trees for TRIBS program that I've been working with closely here to develop a rapport with them where they begin to understand how to stack plantings they're doing to have more wild edible genetics and then, and go for more later successional varieties because they have a tendency to plant out because I, I think one of the things we're doing with, with state agencies is they want to show big numbers on their spreadsheets of how many trees planted, but then they don't have a lot of sophistication often in terms of the species selection that they're planting out. So you end up with, like you were saying, a lot of popples or other 
pioneer species that would have shown up if you just did nothing for like five or 10 years. And they're out there with volunteer labor, like staking it and tree tubing it. And you're like, but this is a bunch of poplars and willows and red mate. What are you guys doing? Yeah. Like, and then, and then they don't even have a plan to go back and pull the tree tubes out. Yeah. So, and they don't care if it's under easement or not. So like the, the, the state will actually finance epic scale reforestation on what is private real estate that they have no idea what the potential future use is going to be of that land. Right. And so what what I'm looking at is like, well, could we dovetail this knowledge set of the tree crops community with these well-funded rollouts of reforestation and start to have these reforestation projects incorporating these unique hybrid hickories and these unique varieties of heartnut and butternut that we could have be part of what the state is planting when they're doing. And perhaps the next step is conservation greenhouses that do propagation of those genetics outside of the private sector. Because, you know, right now, one of the things I'd like to to discuss here and, and get into with you next is this whole thing of the, the actual tree planting projects that you've worked on and some of how that, how that has, you know, how that's been going for you, any like lessons learned from it. Um, what would you say has been the evolution of your your process around the implementation of some of these larger scale plantings? And just to set you up on that, I did uh, find an article online from June 2019 talking about work that you did with a cat named Kevin Mayer. Does that yep. ring a bell? Yep. And, uh, and it was an interesting article because then they also talked about uh, bread tree and they talked about um, Dave Jackie, they mentioned that you had done some work with him. And I was yeah. wondering when I was hearing you talk about going along with succession and participatory landscape, some of that is language that I've associated with some of Dave's work in the, the forest garden material. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, so Kevin moved to my town, well, our town, (laughs) to Cambridge to raise his children um, from New Jersey, I believe. And he just stopped by one day. I was butchering rabbits or something. He stopped by with his kids and we became friends. And he he was a big fan of Mark Shepard's and he got to know Mark. And he'd been trying to figure out ways to connect private equity with agroforestry stuff. And yeah. I, I sort of was like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, Kevin. I love it. It's a great idea, great idea. And then finally, after like four years, I was like, okay, I'm giving in. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you want to do? Like, I, like regenerative agriculture, permaculture, agroforestry, all these like buzzy things. Yes. They tend to be like preachers and Ponzi schemes. Right. You know, yeah. and I'm like, I'm just like a, just a hillbilly. And I just want to, I just want to just whatever. Like it gets yeah. mad. Um, but yeah. Either way, totally I, said, sure. I said, sure, let's do it. And he's got friends in the private equity world and stuff. And I was like, let's do it. And so we started a company and we were going to do like an equity share. You know, we had this business model, you know, based off of just some ideas. We were just going for it. Um, and yeah. then, you know, Mark, uh, Mark has a lot of recognition. He's got a lot of projects. So he tends to work with crews all over the place to try to get his work done because he's got huge ambitions, too. And he's mm-hmm. got nurseries putting out a lot, a lot of trees. Um, yeah. But we just started working on projects. Like, as you said, you know, Dominic, we just kind of, it, it happened really fast. So I did learn a lot, yeah. but um, 
I, I stepped away after a little while just to like, I wasn't sure if it was going the way I wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to take some time off and just be in the woods with my horses. My kids were at an age where I needed to be, I wanted to be around them more too. And I could see that world taking me away pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and Kevin's still doing it. His, his company um, has put in, they're putting in trees today, probably. They are, him and uh, pretty sure Mark is still involved too. And um, they have some farms in like the, Cobalt scale area that they're working on and with various partners, equity partners. Is that like a 600 acres and something like that? I I have a friend who's part of a, uh, his name's Will K9. Do you know, Will? I know Will real well. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Will, I don't, yeah, Will's Will's doing a lot. So I don't know if Will's doing that project or not, but yeah, yeah, there's some definitely some overlap there for sure. But yeah. lessons learned, um, we, uh, I mean, we got Joe Pizzo, who I mentioned earlier, he's, yeah. he's doing projects with lots of different people. I mean, he's just like, he's just awesome. He just goes for it. He has his own little, not little, he has his own nonprofit that works with veterans doing tree planting stuff. Oh, and cool. Like, we, we instantly hit off and we, like the first day we worked together, we planted 10,000 trees together. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that was really energizing like that like okay we can rent like with bootstraps up i borrowed a tractor we borrowed a planter we you know we just threw it together last minute and we were like when it came to like executing a project we were knocking it out of the park but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way we did it there's a lot of things i never will do again basically um (laughs) like what are some of those just like (laughs) i'm sharing just you know, just, just normal, like normal farm mistakes that I would have never made on a mm. farm. Like yeah. checking the soils, making sure the varieties are right. Just little silly things. But we were trying, we were just experimenting, you know, because Mark has had a lot of success, just like planting trees and hay fields and cornfields and like, but there's nuance there. He's got 30 some odd years of experience doing it. So we're cranking it out and then we leave and there's a landowner left by themselves to maintain 10,000, 20,000 trees, whatever we put in and without some like serious support from experienced folks, you know, it just wasn't the way it should be. So that makes sense, but it's like, it's still good. Like I'm still visiting these sites and learning so much. Yeah. A lot of won't do that again, but there's been plenty of super positive surprises too. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I used to, my father was obsessed with American chestnuts and we grew American chestnuts as a kid, but I'm no, no way, shape or form a chestnut expert, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and hazelnuts the same way. I pick wild hazelnuts, but I barely started growing them until I started putting in 10,000s. So I yeah. would never say I'm a subject, subject matter expert on that stuff. I've learned yeah. a lot in the last six years, but yeah, but there are people who are, and I just, we need to listen yeah. to them and take their advice. And so oh, like, site prep, um, on these agroforestry farms, like a little yep. bit more planning, a little less like takeoff, um, yep. doing more site prep and also just being more critical about what farms each tree is going on. Like we can grow food on anything, you know, that's the permaculture idea, but we can't farm profitably on anything, <laughs> you know, they've yep. got to be kind of in the right spot for us to generate enough just feed other people. It's great to feed ourselves in our community, but if we really do want to be filling boats with food to New York City, mm-hmm. we should be taking the 
ag the lessons we know from agriculture and applying them a little bit more stringently um, when it comes to site prep and and follow through. But then also just being really clear with the landowner, taking a little more time to to like make sure there's a management plan. Yeah. That that we all agree on before we even start stuffing anything in the ground. And that, that was what Dominic reflected to me was he said he had regretted not keeping you on to maintain the planting that you guys had worked on, on his site in Copate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I have to get down there again soon, but I think there's going to be a lot of good surprises on that one though. The soils there for what we did were, were pretty good. They were, yeah. enough, it was, su- it was just super fast and wild. And, and that is so fun. Like we all had like adrenaline highs and we're all feeling good, but there's things that we probably should have slowed down on. <laughs> and I know everyone else, I, everyone else in this world, like uh, we're, a lot of us are friends. Like you mentioned bread tree, they moved into our area and I've become friends with, um, with uh, Noah and Russ and I love what they're doing. And I'm like, tell me everything you've heard and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Like, we, and we should all be sharing these things. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And then Dave, Dave was, uh, Dave knew Kevin from a long time ago and we bumped into each other in at, um, one of the nutrient dense food conferences. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. His name, um, Dan Kitteridge. Dan. Yes. One of Dan's events. And yeah. I just love Dave, man. Like yeah. I just love him. I just, obviously I think everyone who meets him loves him. He's just like, yeah, just a great guy. So, um, yeah, we we've been trying to keep in touch. Or I try to keep in touch with him because I, I tell my wife this all the time. Like, I got a ton of friends that I don't know if it's mutual, but I don't really care because I love them. So I'm going to bug them. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, it was funny in that article. I just happened to being permaculture focused in my career. I know I latched on to this phrase this guy Hart made in the interview. He said that. Uh, Permaculture was something that was great at a small scale, but it wouldn't really work at a broader scale. And I, I chuckled myself because he's right. Most people think of it as kind of backyard gardening or self-sufficient homesteading. What I've focused on the last 15 years of teaching has been regional scale and watershed scale and more broad landscape application. And that is part of why I wanted to move the permaculture design kind of lexicon more into regional planning scale applications, because I do think that it gives a lot of beneficial insights when it's applied at that scale. And it largely hasn't been explored by most of the materials that are out there. Most of what people associate with it is more of like homestead scale applications. And, um, you know, it, it's basically a design process that you can apply to any landscape. And like we've been discussing, it kind of harkens back to people like Ian McCarg in Design with Nature, where he's talking about how certain geologies have what he calls intrinsic suitabilities, that it makes sense to do forestry and grazing on shale soils. It makes sense to have good, rich food crops on limestone soils and It makes sense to do construction of larger urban areas on what he calls like crystalline or quartz, harder geology and granite. And so you can kind of create these patterns that you can begin to say on a broad landscape scale, where do we grow the staple cereal crops? Where do we substitute them with nuts and tree crops? Where do we 
start to plan out food independence. And this is something that I've been excited to find some studies out there. There's one called uh, foodsolutions.org. It's called a food vision for lower New England. And it's, it's basically, it was part of University of New Hampshire. But then another um, colleague of mine, Lisa Fernandez, who's a perma, permaculture teacher up in Maine, Lisa's the director of food solutions out of University of New Hampshire. And it, it basically focuses on what would it look like for the lower New England state, six states to go more food independent. And Eric Tonsmeyer is also part of the design team that put together this study. And they're, they're basically showing how to take a lot of the patterns we've been discussing of where do you put in nut trees on rockier, steeper slopes? Where do you start to keep existing forest intact, but do some opening up to increase the ability to be more independent in things like vegetables and fruits and berries? And it's an interesting study. Yeah. And so what it does is it, it starts to open this conversation that I've been interested in exploring for a good more than a decade, which is regional planning with a geared vision towards food independence, year-round full diet food supply at a regional planning scale, where we take it out of this notion that what the goal of, let's say, permaculture or um, local food, that those, those terms aren't so much what the focus is, but that it's more a focus of, of what does it really look like to take food out of the commodities market and turn it into something that is just a basically local inalienable right that people have a right to access to food. And that what we can do rather, rather than getting lost in, say, political rhetoric, more the focus here that I've been interested in is this ability to say, tie open space funding to financing, creating farms that cater to the local tax base that funds the open space fund, right? So in effect, we've already got a precedent on the books in various areas where development pressure is pretty intense, like southeastern Pennsylvania, where the Hershey trees are. This type of fund is quite robust. Chester County, Pennsylvania, Apparently, my colleague David Harper worked at Natural Lands Trust for more than 10 years, protecting land down there. And he was telling me their open space fund brings in something like 30 million a year just in Chester County that they use to acquire open space. Uh, the whole state of South Carolina collects 15 million in one year. So in some areas like Chester County, it's very robust, right? So that concept you can take and you can say, all right, so let's take this idea of an open space fund and now let's use it as a tool to actually finance local food production that is land that's owned by the municipality and then land that is funding by salary growers who grow for local food distribution hubs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the permaculture thing, regenerative agriculture, all these buzzwords, like from a distance, they all kind of mingle, but the nuances, what I really like, like about like what you're saying and what I like about Dave and more what I would consider the permaculture type folks is they have this like commons ethic, mm -hmm. like working towards yeah. a, greater, a greater good. And yeah. I think that is scalable. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is the, I well mean, 
we yeah. we pretty quickly undid that in the U.S. Yeah. When, when us Anglo's came and spread a bunch of disease, but there was a lot of common structures already in place that we probably should have learned a little bit from before we demolished them. But that is for sure. Not the <laughs> not the imperialistic colonialistic commons where it's just serfs just struggling to make it by, but yeah, actual like real and and like yeah, and I I um I think that can inform. I mean, just that. So in the way that um, the lean principle has informed manufacturing and decision-making processes, mm -hmm. that commons could be applied to corporate structures. It could be applied to a lot of things. It's mm -hmm. more like a principle and an ethic than a practice. And yeah, uh, spiral herb gardens aren't scalable, but no right. one's ever said they were. And no yeah. one's ever said that's the only thing permaculture is. So to me, permaculture right. has a lot more to do with the social pieces of it and then the practices you know kind of they can come and go and kind of fit and mix depending on the context of the location yeah well i'm right now teaching at my daughter's montessori school as a barter for her attendance there and i'm teaching permaculture classes to seventh and eighth graders and ninth and tenth graders and there really my focus is on like you were just saying first it's the ethics then are the principles and how those apply to any site. And then the outermost layer really are the techniques, which are often what most people who aren't really more familiar with what permaculture is per se, tend to know it through the techniques. Yes. And think, oh, I know what, yeah, it's herb spirals, it's chicken tractors, it's forest gardening. And you're like, well, it's actually this, this ethic about creating a healthy planet for healthy people where there's more than enough to go around for everyone. And then that is why the principles are something we're paying attention to because they help us to get there, to achieve those ethics and those goals. And then techniques are really site-specific, climate-specific, client, community-specific, right? As to what makes sense where. And that, that's really important when we teach. I mean, I've been teaching certification courses as a major part of my entrepreneurial business. I've been in New York City for 14 years teaching these 72-hour certification courses in a landscape that's totally anomalous to where most people study permaculture. And that's part of why I focused on urban retrofit and retrofitted the entire Northeastern Corridor, because I wanted to make permaculture design in New York City relevant to New York City, not be permaculture design for preppers and homesteaders who want to run away escape from New York style. Right? I was like, no, we're going to teach about how do you redesign NYC with permaculture? And so that way I could give people this view of how it's a design process that is really helpful in any landscape. And yeah. it also, it also, I schooled myself in that by making that my own, in a sense, design assignment upon coming to New York City in 2009 after having homesteaded off the grid for eight years in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, specifically as my own self-immersion education in a lot of permaculture methods that I had learned about, like just straw bale and natural building. And, and I've been teaching up in Vermont at Yestermorrow for 17 years. So I was just thinking yeah. about recently to quite some time. And that's how I know Buzz is from Yestermorrow. And he and I've and I created curriculum there. I created helped create a sustainable design build certificate program for Yestermorrow. 
So I, and I wondered, I don't want to keep you a lot longer, but I know I could, I could keep talking with you for quite some time. I wanted, I'd love to hear a little about what, what were your, what were your inspirations? What were some of your, um, what were some of your, your goals with the educational programming that you set up for the SUNY Adirondack program? What were some of the things you were hoping to, you know, to manifest with that? That brought yeah. you. Yeah, that that was a um, that was another sort of like interesting. Ran into somebody at a conference situation. Um, Dr. Sherbatskoy, he is the biology professor. He, he, we're waiting for him to retire. Not hoping he'll retire, but he's just been going for so long, you know. But he, I met him at a NOFA conference, and mm-hmm. we just were, it was one of those like keep seeing you around. We should sit down and chat. What are you up to? And we started talking and I was farming at the time. So he said, Hey, you want to come up and talk to my sustainable foods class or something? So sure. And then we put together a sustainable agriculture class and I did an adjunct thing. And, um, it, it seemed like it had some traction. So I, um, Tim knew some philanthropists who really were interested in getting more ag programming at the school. Mm-hmm. So I, I put together a little job description basically and said, I think I could help you guys as a project manager part-time because I have to keep farming. Um, and uh, yeah, and they, they bit because Tim had raised the money already and found the person. And it was kind of like a no brainer until we started going down that track and we learned very quickly, it's too late, but we learned that uh, in order to have an agriculture degree in New York state, it's kind of an old, old rule. You need to be considered an agricultural college. College. Oh, and those agricultural colleges certifications were from like, I don't remember when, like the 50s probably. You uh-huh. know, they were very specific. Luckily, there was a lot of support at the state and, and the SUNY level to be like, yeah, these are old rules. Let's let's figure it out. And SUNY Cobleskill, the folks at SUNY Cobleskill mentored me and helped me so much and we did a master plan amendment for SUNY Adirondack and they qualified. We qualified a community college as a new ag school, which mm-hmm. that, was a, that was a big step. Um, but in the meantime, we did a bunch of non-credit work, uh, just lots of workshops. Dr. Sherbatskoy has a really cool little orchard up there and he's been in the tree world forever. And he was good friends with the late Nate Darrow. Um, so they did apple pruning classes and different property mm-hmm. classes and um, yeah farm walks we did a we create a peer-to-peer network so that oh cool my farmer friends and i could like complain to each other about how shitty farming is when in the middle of summer you know and <laughs> we did like a pie and whiskey night that was a good one <laughs> that does sound good <laughs> um but yeah and then so yeah then we we created the program and we put the one of the first agroecology courses on the books I mean, it was like one of two in the country at the time. I'm not sure how many there are now, like as a formal college class. So that was pretty cool. Was, mm-hmm. We were all pretty proud of that. Like it was some work um, for sure. Yeah. And I still keep, I, I, you know, after my term, I stepped away um, and uh, I still keep in touch. Like we just planted a productive riparian buffer or started a productive riparian buffer with the uh, Morin County Soil and Water District. Oh, cool. Um, last week. Yeah, we did a little, we put in a tree nursery, built some air prune beds, and um, we got a grant through the Lake Champlain Basin, and they're uh-huh. a lot of tree planting stuff. They actually have a nursery grant available right now. Uh-huh. Oh, really? 
they're doing a lot of great work with the watershed. But they're focused on Lake Champlain watershed. They are the basin program. Yeah, it's a it's a. That's cool. That's really neat. Organizations, really. It's not an organization. What were some of the things you put in the productive buffer? Well, to start with, we did elderberries last Uh week um, with the students. Um, We are, it's kind of a funny spot because it's going to be more of a demo than a real, we picked a ditch that would work well for to be maintained. Yeah. Um, But we did, uh, because it has runoff, from parking lots. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. We're building this thing that I, these things I like to build, like anywhere where a, anywhere a restriction opens up, I like to build these sort of like Delta swale, not even swales, but like Delta patterns that get bigger, like fans going out from there. And this yeah. ditch in particular was a ditch and then it ends like in a hayfield. And uh-huh. so there's just water running across the hayfield causing erosion issues. I mean, it's fairly flat, but it's, it kind of goes all over so at the end of the ditch, even though seasonally it flows all the way through, we did uh, um, ornamentals, woody ornamentals, because we didn't want anything you could eat in that directly in the water coming off the parking lot. Yeah. Uh, but some funky willows, kind of whatever we could get our uh-huh. hands on. Like corkscrew willow and that kind of thing. Different colors and stuff. So those are like progressively cool. getting bigger fans coming out from there. Um, yeah. And then the students, you know, are interested in a bunch of just lots of just fun random stuff is going in too. Cool. Um, cool. That sounds really neat. Yeah. Yeah. And they have nice. a few hundred chestnuts and a few hundred hazelnuts in the air prune beds that they're going to work into the orchard, the uh, more, uh, you know, sort of alley cropping section in the future. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there plantings you're involved in at present? Are there any installs that you're working on? That you, yeah, that a little bit. One of my neighbors uh, li- that lives on the Battenkill River who moved here recently, he's really excited. He's been working with Trout Unlimited, and he wants to restore his riparian forest. Mm-hmm. So we're doing some native work there. We're going to mix in some fun stuff, too, because it's his backyard. Yeah. It's like back yeah. forth. Um, but, yeah, yeah. We're, we're helping restore some of the the uh, like sycamore, cottonwood, butternut um, riparian yeah. forests that we have around here that are – they're just amazing. I love them. And the, I just, they're just such beautiful places. We have some small intact parcels, but then I'm also working with Will Canine, uh-huh. Emma Ratcliffe on doing some more. Um, right at this point, we're doing the planning, like the stuff that I said, I wish I had done before mm-hmm. um, planning and design work to try to partner with, you know, private capital again to make some larger scale plantings so we're not right. planting right now but we're doing the pre-planning phase and you know and identifying the partners to work with and who to collaborate with too like bread tree those guys are friends of mine and they're putting in chestnuts right around the corner from my house and they're really going for it and they're, they're great and they're they have you know i would love to figure out ways to partner with other people who are trying these same things um, right right how are we going to support each other um I, I really am pretty, um, pretty motivated to swap the tractor for my horses. Yeah. Uh, there aren't too many people who can run a tree planter with horses. Right. On Amish. And so I figured why, why should I waste that? I really should do that. So I've been totally. building, I like to weld. So I've been building some prototypes and today actually one of my horse friends hooked me up with this interesting crimper 
that we're going to try for some site prep stuff. And that's cool. Have you had any people make any decent short films or videos about the work you're doing? Nope. Nope. Because that might, that might be something I'd love to bring sometime to some of your projects, because I think that uh, it's an important tool to expand awareness about the kind of projects you're working on. And um, yeah, film is something that I find to be an important thing to, to consider is documentation and, and uh, spreading the visuals of some of the work that you're doing. I mean, that's what comes to mind as I think about you're out there with a horse-drawn tree planting mechanism and, you know, even somebody who could take some good iconic shots of you welding and then you've got you out there. I mean, this is like for saleable stuff, man. It's, it's kind of funny <laughs> because I didn't have a cell phone until like two years ago. Um, oh, awesome. And yeah. I mean, I did in college, but I got rid of it for a while. And yeah. And I, I do the work I do because it's beautiful to me too. Yeah. But I don't expect it to be beautiful to anybody else, nor do I care. Mm-hmm. One of those things where I'm like, like you, I appreciate like, oh, I appreciate like the work, the work that Costas, Costas is doing, like his, yeah, wood, yep. like Hickory Nut Growers, Woodlander. I like watch those things over. Like I love yep. I love it when people do it. I just don't think about it necessarily on my own. I'm just like, I try to remember to take pictures and videos. Right. But I'm- no, no, that, that's why I'm just so in the, I wanted to see your yeah, yeah. interest in it all. Cause that's the kind of thing I could bring. I have a documentary filmmaker right now who's a graduate and we're talking about doing a tour and taking some different footage. I would, and- I would love, I would love to do that. My, my little sister is a photographer and she came out to our planting at Dominic. Dominic yeah. took some pictures and they're just like, I just love looking at it. Like it, it reminds me of those yeah. special days. And so I definitely am into it. Yeah. So part of me, like the more radical side is like, I like to not be known. Mm-hmm. But I also mm-hmm. am a loud, very open person. So I don't actually care <laughs> like one way or another. Like I want, I, if I can, if, if the work, if, if video and publicity will help, move any the needle forward in any sort of direction then i'm in for sure and i i would i would love to come up there and collaborate with you like maybe even you know we could do a workshop or something just as like a way to kind of like you're saying just keep the ripples moving out there into the fabric and keep this stuff moving because uh yeah I, that's the kind of thing that i think i have good capacity to do is to like work with someone like yourself to do something where we could do an install and do a weekend workshop, like some what you've done with Mark. Do you, do you happen to know Mark Krawcheck? Are you familiar with his latest book? So he just came out with one called Agroforestry and Coppicing that yeah. Dave did the editing, some of the editing work on for him. Yes. Yeah. When Dave and I were hanging out a lot more, he was working on some of those, um, yeah. some of the research for it. So yeah. I, I've only met him very briefly at conferences. I, got i have a like i i think i love him like i love his book i like every time i've met him he seems like an awesome person but i don't know him personally yeah he is yeah mark and i've taught together for years he's been my co-teacher yes tomorrow for going on 10 years now so really yeah. yeah he is he's very he's like he's a golden person just one of those people who's authentic got integrity comes just as he comes across that's how he is you know <laughs> It's just refreshing to work with people in the permaculture community who aren't ego driven and are much more like, let's get the work done. And to me, one of the things that I do is I teach and getting the work done is about 
teaching. So that's that's a conversation I would really appreciate to keep going with you is ways that we could collaborate in educational capacities. Because I think I think teaching is it's very important. And it's, yeah. it's, it's an important way for us to get these unique knowledge sets that you have out into the world more. You know, one of the one of the guys we're working with right now, Ted Danicky, who Buzz introduced us to, Ted has 10 acres in New Jersey, and he's planted the whole thing out with all kinds of hybrid hickories that he's been developing, pecans that he has down there. And we were, he's another person who is much further along in his life spectrum than you are, but also an example of somebody who has really unique life skills that we want to continue a tradition in having apprenticeships and having people study with folks who have knowledge that is not very common knowledge, right? Yeah. Yeah, And I've done the apprenticeship and internship thing, brought on people and I actually, this year, I, similar to you, I'm in the process of uh, a 501c3 right now for that, specifically mm-hmm. for forestry stuff. Um, uh, so I really, you know, a lot of people want to learn about horses. And I, yeah. I'm, I'm a member and a former board member of the Draft Animal Power Network. And we do workshops and, and field days and online stuff. And, um, and yeah, so I, I'm happy. I love contributing to those things and it's just oh, figuring, cool. figuring out how to uh, do more. Basically. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I, I'll definitely be in touch about some ideas then of things yeah. we could do. And the, the other thing that I feel like I, where I'm a little bit of an odd out is, and, and I want to embrace it is sort of like one of my issues in college, I was like an environmentalist and, but I, a lot of my friends and the people I grew up with and my people like, the hill country type folks mm-hmm. never identify as an environmentalist, even if they are. Right. So, you know, to me, that's like a huge opportunity, a huge group of people that I connect with because I am one yeah. um, bringing, bringing them into this world. And like, you know, I mean, I don't know what to call it, but like country folks, blue collar folks, working class folks, those are my people. That's me. Like any opportunities we can, I can create where I'm, creating some sort of job, some sort of work in a rural economy. That's like those to me, those are the superheroes. Those are the ones who are going to save us and get us out of this. Like we can have all this theory, we can have all these ideas. And, um, but if there's no one who's like strong and has experience on the land and experience with living systems, who's willing to work them, it's going to be really hard to do. Um, so that's somewhere I really motivate is to, you know, connect with my people and get, more, more of my, uh, more of my country folks involved in this stuff. We've got that. We've got like some really like passionate folks in permaculture and we've got sort of the preppers, like you said, but mm-hmm. there's a whole group of like everyday folks that I think would just really be awesome at, at all this stuff. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. And I totally agree. It's part of what our focus is too, is bringing like I'm doing a series right now at the Ellenville library that are about permaculture, land management. I just gave a talk to a village committee group about how to apply it in village planning. I I think it's so important that we bring ideas rather than thinking that these ideas somehow are obscure to one group or another. It's more about, are they relevant and can we help them, you know, mature into real benefits that give back to the community in ways. And 
I think that as these local farming communities and local populations start to think about what does it mean for them to have food security and energy security and to start to help with really materializing tangible ways to move forward with that, I think are both they're both timely things that we're starting to hear about in more of the mainstream, but they're also timeless things that are relevant to any community that starts to really pay attention long enough to say, yeah, where does our food come from and how could we shorten the distance of transportation of our basic necessities? Like, can, we bring, can we bring these things home? You know, and what role can we play in our communities to help that happen near term, midterm and long term? And I think that's part of what many of us get inspired about with trees and especially nut trees and upper canopy trees. You begin to realize this is a true long term inheritance that we're leaving when we can leave landscapes that will continue to feed people for arguably centuries after we're dead and gone. Right. That's that's a real legacy. Yeah, one of my friends, um, she started as a client and we've become close friends. She's in her 70s, I believe, at this point. And when we walk around and look at her farm and talk about things, we're always like, man, it's going to be so nice when we do this walk in 125 years together again. Like, it's going to be so beautiful. You know, <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that that's part of my focus in as we, as we wrap up here this evening, but just to you know, one of the main reasons behind the Permaculture Living Lands Trust is so that those forest ecologies, those um, to reforest the food system that you're working on will be there for future generations to inherit and to enjoy without being put in legal jeopardy. And that, I think, is is a important part of the plan of rolling out these forested landscapes that are multifunctional is being sure that we've thought about the long game as far as that, you know, the legal status of them. Right. Yeah. I, that is so crucial. And that's, that's the conversations we're, we're all having is like, I had just got a call and not even a tree crops client, but I got a call from a, a sheep dairy farmer who's since retired and she's a neighbor of mine and she wants to figure out some sort of forest management plan. Cause she's trying to transition the whole farm and, we mm -hmm. sat and talked for hours like about different legal structures and how she's like just running into the wall with every lawyer. And they're like, there's nothing for that. There's no box for that. There's no boilerplate, but she's like, mm -hmm. there has mm -hmm. to be something, you know, and she's realistic. She's not trying to like micromanage the future. Right. She, she's like, I failed in farming and whoever comes on next needs to fail their own way. You know, we right. don't have room for, yeah. that, for that, but, but she's like, but it, you know, there's certain principles basically like we've been talking about certain principles mm -hmm. that you know and, and are important and we we yeah we don't know what the future has as to hold but we can kind of try to plan um plan for a little bit of that <laughs> a little bit well, keep keep us in you know think think of me as a as a as an ally in projects like that and when it seems to you like hey it might be helpful to talk with david harper or andrew's land trust expert on this topic, we can easily do one of these meetings with a, with a client like that and just spend, you know, even just half an hour kicking it around, uh, yeah. would not, would be totally within our, you know, within our purview. No, that would be no problem for us to take, say a half hour zoom meeting to just talk with folks and say, here's what we're working on as far as trying to create a template that could apply to protecting certain aspects of what gets planted on a property. And, 
what I'm, you know, part of what, what I'm sensing or referring to there is like, how do you word an easement in such a way that it allows a certain amount of use, but doesn't hamstring what future use could be, right? And what does that language look like to construct easements like that? And that, that you're absolutely right. We're all arriving kind of at similar places at a similar time, because that's exactly what we're working on with Buzz and with Ted Danicky is what does it look like to create a legacy plan that also has easement overlays that aren't some kind of onerous legal baggage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cause these trees, these trees, the one thing we were talking about one day, I was meeting with a lawyer and talking about things. And it's like, the trees are sort of part of a real asset, you know, like they're rooted there. They're not going anywhere. So the same way you have like, you know, covenants on the buildings and the structure Mm -hmm. stuff, it, it's messy though, because you could be pretty easy to be like, well, I set this up and I want it to be exactly what I want. But still, like, there's a gray area there. Like, those trees are real assets. They're supposed to be here for a long time. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a big investment. <laughs> and, and the easement is a flexible tool. So that's part of what we're exploring is how to have it modulate and adapt. And they don't have to apply to an entire parcel. So you can create easements that are only overlaying the the riparian where you put in the productive buffers, or you can put an easement that's unique to a patch of woodlot that's been planted for a particular management goal. And those are some of the scenarios that we're exploring at the the kind of like brass tacks level of the work that we're doing. But also keep us in mind if you're coming across property owners who you think, hey, maybe PLLT would be able to help with this yeah. because that's that's what we're here for is for yourself and other members of this community who, as you're working in the field, it sort of dawns on you, hey, maybe maybe those guys could help with this project. You know, please feel free to like just research and tap me at any time and say, hey, I've come across a project. Can you talk, you know, tomorrow about what some options are? Because that's that's what we've created the permaculture living lands trust for is yes yeah. with this work that you're involved in and Great. others. Yeah, know definitely. About. I mean, I turn down more work than the people need this. There's, there's a huge demand. So yeah, there's a lot, yeah. a lot of work out there. A lot of good work. Yeah. And we're, and we're in your region. So we're definitely willing to travel where that's necessary or just make sense, you know, after we have like a meeting and a conversation, if there's need to come, and have boots on the ground, walking of sites. I always enjoy taking it to that level that we need to, to get clarity about what are we talking about and what makes sense here, right? And there's only so much you can do at a distance. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Great. Well, Jared, really appreciate you taking the time and it's inspiring to hear about the work you're doing and, and makes me want to come up and visit you there and get involved in some projects with you, really. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I appreciate like, it. I appreciate you uh, being persistent with me too. Um, and this is great. Oh, yeah. it's great to finally meet you. So cool. Well, let's. Uh, I'd love to do uh, to be continued too. We've got lots more. I had a bunch of other things I wanted to get to. We've been talking for an hour and a half. So I really appreciate you taking the time, man. I yeah, like we could just hang out yelling into the evening here. Yeah. Well, like I said, I'm a pretty chatty guy when it's stuff I really like. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I, I look forward to doing some work with you. So please keep me in mind and uh, I'll plan a visit up to you when I'm going up to Vermont next. Maybe I can take a side leg over and just 
say hey yeah definitely i would i would that would be great it'd be awesome cool well thank you jared yeah thank you again have a good evening man you too take care that was Permaculture Living Lands Trust Listening Series number three with Jared Woodcock. Hey, if you enjoy our material, feel free to send me an email at contact at home biome if you'd like to donate to the Permaculture Living Lands Trust. We are a 501c3 and can uh, receive official donations. And any other inquiries as well, send to an email or give me a call 917-584-4588 check us out on instagram at permaculture living and at our website permaculturenewyork.com thanks for listening look forward to hearing from you and helping with any projects where you want to conserve preserve trees and increase the abundance for future generations